variations for winds, strings and keyboards by the American composer Steve Reich, whose music has addressed subjects as diverse as the Old Testament, cloning and robotics, racial tension in his native New York and the writings of Wittgenstein. Born in 1936, Reich began his musical studies in the 50s, but he broke with the high serialism so beloved of the Music Academy to follow his own path. He wrote in a new language, creating pieces from pulsating musical patterns and tape loops, mixing up all those influences from Ghanaian drumming to 12th century chant, from Bach to Theolonius Monk. I've been talking to Steve Reich ahead of his Irish visit, listening to some of his landmark pieces in his company. And we began by talking about his 1989 piece, Different Trains. Well, when I was a kid, uh, my parents were divorced when I was one year old, and my mother, who was a singer and a songwriter, uh, went to Los Angeles where she was uh, raised, and my father, who was an attorney, stayed in New York. And the way they worked out the, uh, the details were that the, I was supposed to spend six months with my father and six months with my mother in Los Angeles. And I had a, a nurse, a governess, a nanny by the name of Virginia, and she was the, the constant. She was the person who was with me when I was with my father, when I was with my mother, and when I was on a four-day train ride in between, because in those days, and I'm talking 1937, 38, 39, so on, uh, the way you crossed America was via train. Uh, one day from New York to Chicago, changed trains, and then three days from Chicago to Los Angeles. And um, I did this, you know, one way, and then six months later went back the other way. Uh, if you're, you know, two, three, four years old, uh, and you're looking out the window and looking at this incredible cowboy country, it makes quite an impression on you. Uh, a little bit sad, a little bit romantic, but a very, very strong memory. In that sense, uh, the first movement of uh, different trains are interviews with uh, or me talking to Virginia, my governess, when she was, at that point, 77 years old. Uh, about the old days when we used to take these trains back and forth. And what I realized uh, in thinking back on the whole thing was that while I was taking those trips in uh, 1937, 38, 39, uh, little Jewish boys like me who were born, uh, who, who were unfortunately born in uh, Bremen or uh, Düsseldorf or uh, Budapest or Brussels or Rotterdam were taking trains to uh, Poland or thereabouts and they weren't talking to the RTF today. So that became the basic idea for the piece. And in the piece, the music imitates the speech patterns of the people on the tape. That's exactly right. When we speak, Donna D, we sometimes almost sing. Uh, when we're particularly uh, excited, we may, quote, sing more. Uh, children sing a lot because they don't have much control over their larynx. And as a result, you know, Daddy, I want an ice cream, will sometimes become more melodic. Uh, I'm not the first composer to notice it. As a matter of fact, uh, I was giving a talk at Juilliard and uh, someone... An older member of the faculty said to me, had I ever read the letters and, and papers of uh, uh, Leo Janacek? And I said, no, I hadn't. He said, well, he said, you ought to. So sure enough, I bought the book, and he has a long extended piece about speech melody. And apparently Janacek used to walk around Prague writing down in a music notebook what people said, not what they sang, but what they said, their speech melody. And he would put these speech melodies into his uh, Operas, which were, of course, written in Czech and were written with a motivation to pe for people to speak Czech with pride since educated Czechs in those days were obliged to speak German. We're going to hear some of different trains now featuring the Kronos Quartet. <laughs> Thank you. 
Now, in that piece, recordings of actual speech become something more powerful than everyday announcements, for example, over the tannoy. Yeah, well, they become, uh, they were chosen as uh, sort of semaphores or flags, uh, dates uh, from Chicago, from Chicago to New York, uh, emblematic statements that would establish place and time. Uh, and then the speech melody of the speaker gives it its personality and gives me literally uh, the melody, because every time a woman speaks on the tape, I've notated what she says in musical notation, and a viola will double her. And every time a man speaks, uh, the cello doubles him. <laughs> the violins get the job of doubling the train whistles, which were also recorded. Uh, so um, the binding together of the musical with the, with the documentary is pretty seamless. And of course, the piece is, uh, I guess, is one of the best I've ever done. He began to warn the people. He said, after a while, it's going to rain after a while, for 40 days and for 40 nights. And the people didn't believe him. And they began to laugh at him. And they began to mock him. And they began to say, it ain't going to rain. Can we talk a little bit about the earlier tape pieces you made, like It's Gonna Rain and Come Out? How, how did they come about? Well, uh, It's Gonna Rain sort of was the beginning of the, of this, of the phasing technique, which sort of, put, sort of began the work for which I became known. Uh, the source was a, a black Pentecostal preacher I recorded in Union Square in San Francisco preaching about the flood, about Noah. And uh, this was in 1964, a year after the Cuban Missile Crisis, when I and many other people thought we were all going to be destroyed. So it had, you know, the story of Noah and the destruction of the planet outside of Noah in his ark, um, you know, has a lot, had a lot of resonance, still unfortunately has a lot of resonance. Uh, I made tape loops, which for people who weren't born without ever seeing a piece of tape, but <laughs> live in a world of hard, hard disks, just like I do. Uh, a tape loop is a piece of, uh, of tape that's not on a cassette. It's actually from reel-to-reel tape uh, spliced together and pasted together with a piece of what was called splicing tape um, so that it went around and around and around. It was like a little circle of tape. Uh, and I had two little tape recorders, and I made what I thought was two identical loops of It's Gonna Rain, uh, and I made them as, as, as exact as I could. But, of course, you know, uh, human beings are imperfect, and so are machines. I had a pair of headphones with uh, one earphone plugged into one tape recorder and the other plugged into the other. And I pressed the go buttons on both machines simultaneously. And lo and behold, completely by chance, the two loops were lined up exactly in unison. 
And the effect of that was that the sound appeared to be in the middle of my head, but uh, sort of in motion, as it were, and moving towards the left side of my head and then down my left shoulder and then down my left leg and then down across the left side of the room. And then pretty soon I began to hear reverberation and then various kinds of strange cannons, you know, until finally I got to the midpoint, which was, it's going to, it's going to, it's going to, it's going to rain, 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 rain. The process of starting in unison and gradually going to this particular relationship and many others along the way completely captured my ear. And that became the first movement of It's Going to Rain and the beginning of the phasing technique. Uh, but very quickly, I felt, well, you know, if you're just going to do this with tape. This is just a gimmick. Um, this is something that happens in uh, windshield wipers on a bus. It's something that happens with w uh, warning bells at a railroad crossing. But, you know, people can't do that. And then, oh, but it's such a great process. Oh, but people can't. So I finally said, look, I'm the second tape recorder. And I made a recording of a pattern uh, on the piano that basically uh, became known to people later as the first, uh, first pattern in a piece called Piano Phase. And that played around and around and around on the tape recorder. I sat down at the piano, closed my eyes, and joined the tape in unison and said, OK, here we go. And I tried to move ever so slowly ahead of the tape, accelerating ever so slightly until I was literally one sixteenth note ahead of it. And I found, number one, hey, I can do it. And number two, it really feels good to do it. It's a kind of meditation. My eyes are closed. Uh, I'm, I'm not reading, but I'm not improvising either because I know what it is that I have to do. I just... It takes a lot of concentrated listening to accomplish uh, doing that. And then within a matter of weeks, I was able to do it with a friend of mine on two pianos. And, you know, look, Ma, no tape. Now, you mentioned piano phase, and it unusually encourages performers to do something that they wouldn't normally do, and that's to play out a step with each other. Right. What happens in piano phases, as I've described earlier on with the tape pieces, one player one player stays put. You're both playing an identical, identical same 12-beat rhythmic pattern to begin with. And one player stays put, and the other tries to move as slowly as possible ahead of the first, which, as you say, is normally uh, a mistake. Uh, what's the net effect of all of that? The net effect of all of that is to give um, a musician uh, a kind of fine-tuning on their sense of time, their sense of tempo. This is a piece of 1967, and people see the piece, I think correctly, as a kind of etude, kind of study in just that, in controlling your tempo and fine-tuning your sense of time. Uh, and I think that probably is the role of a piece like Piano Phase or Violin Phase um, in history of music and in my own output.
You're listening to Rattlebag. We're talking to composer Steve Wright. This is Music for 18 Musicians. Music for 18 Musicians by Steve Rice there, who joins us for this Rattlebag special on his music. Now, the sampling keyboard was an important discovery for you and it was used to great effect in the cave. Tell us something about that work. Uh, what made the significance for the cave was the collaboration with the video artist Bill Crott, uh, who had done multi-channel video installations since back in the early 70s. Uh, the idea was while I was doing different trains, I had also been asked by the Frankfurt Opera and by the Holland Festival for the Netherlands Opera, you know, would I please write them an opera? 
And I said, gee, thank you very much. I'm very flattered, and so on and so on and so forth. But no, uh, I really won't do that because I am not interested in conventional opera. And um, to spend three or four years uh, doing something you're not interested in is a, uh, is a very foolish, <laughs> quasi-suicidal endeavor. So I said no. And then I'd hang up the phone and think, yeah, isn't there anything that I could do? And, and the answer was no, I, I can't think of anything. Well, along comes 1988 and different trains. And as I'm working on the piece, I think to myself, well, this is audio tape of people speaking. And as they speak, the musicians double what they say. What if it was videotape and you could see these people? And then as they spoke, the musicians would play and you'd see the musicians on stage and you'd have this interplay between the live musicians who could be costumed and singers who could be costumed and the screen or screens uh, that had this uh, documentary material on it. And that gave birth to speaking to Beryl Crawford, the video artist, and discussing, well, okay, what would we do? And very quickly we came up with this idea for the cave, which is the cave in the town of Hebron, 30 miles south of Jerusalem, where Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebecca and uh, Jacob and Leah are buried. Uh, and that uh, turned out to be the cave, which uh, was uh, premiered in 1993, pretty much all around Europe and America. I think of Abraham uh, like this. It's uh, 2100 BC, thereabouts. He's living in the third dynasty of Ur. It's a polytheistic society. Chief god is uh, Nana, who is the moon god. Abraham grows up, he's a city kid. His father makes idols, he crafts idols. God says, Go. I'll show you where later. Abraham ups and leaves. Just leave mother, father, and everybody else and go. Abraham ups and leaves. She packs up her pots and pans when she doesn't she doesn't know where they're going. It was God who gave her the name Sarah. He goes into Egypt and passes Sarah off as his sister. Now, you're very keen on sampling sounds, but you're not that keen on sampling music. But the the next generation, in a sense, uh, has been sampling your music, helping themselves to a chunk of it. What what did you think when you first heard The Orb and Fluffy White Clouds, which uh, samples a piece of yours called Electric Counterpoint? Well, I was doing an interview with a uh, 
pop keyboard type magazine in London, and they said to me, what do you think of the orb, like you're saying now? And I said, you know, what's the orb? <laughs> and he said, you don't know? And I said, no, I don't. So he gave me the CD, which you're referring to, which had little fluffy clouds and uh, electric counterpoint. And I thought to myself, well, wow, you know, Brian and Eno and uh, David Bowie may have been influenced by what I've done, but these guys aren't influenced. They just, they just you know, take it lock, stock, and barrel. Uh, but I did not sue them, did not call the lawyer, and I guess I got a good underground reputation in the DJ field as a result of that decision. And um, a number of years later, I guess it was 1996, I was in Japan with my ensemble, and uh, a young man who worked for Nonesuch, my record label, in Japan uh, said, you know, we should make a remix album of, of, of you. Uh, and he, you know, contacted DJs in London, in Tokyo, in New York, and asked them if they'd like to remix pieces of mine, and uh, out came Reich Remixed in 1996, I believe it was, which is basically uh, music by people who probably weren't even born, who definitely weren't born in 1965 when uh, It's Gonna Rain and Come Out, the pieces which uh, excited so many of them were created. I mean, for me, it was, a, it was very, very enjoyable to see musicians that I didn't know personally. I didn't meet any of them until actually the album was already going to be released, and there was you know some promotional activity where I met DJ Spooky and Cole Cut and some of the other people, Andrea Parker, some of the other people that are on the album. Um, to see people in the musical field, very far from my area, DJs and pop musicians uh, not living in the quote new music world, to see that my music had gotten to them, that they did all kinds of various things with it, um, was really um, a big kick. Let's hear a little of Electric Counterpoint in its pure form and then the clubby reworking of same in Fluffy White Clouds by the Orb. To the traditional sounds of an English summer, a drain of lawnmowers, a smack of leather on willow, has been added a new noise. What were the, what were the skies like when you were young? They went on forever. When I, we lived in Arizona, and the skies always had little fluffy clouds in them, and uh, they were long and clear, and there were lots of stars at night. And uh, when it would rain, they were beautiful, the most beautiful skies, as a matter of fact. Uh, the sunsets were purple and red and yellow and on fire. The clouds would catch the colors every 
skies always had little fluffy clouds in them, and uh, they were long and clear, and there were lots of stars at night. And uh, when it would rain, it would all turn. It, they were beautiful, the most beautiful skies, as a matter of fact. Um, the sunsets were purple and red and yellow and on fire, and the clouds would catch the colors everywhere. That's it, neat, because I used to look at Now, your, your home city of New York is uh, celebrated as a bustling metropolis in city life, but the recordings of a rather more poignant nature are featured in the closing movement, aren't they? Yeah. Well, uh, I live four blocks from the World Trade Center, so I'm uh, keenly aware of the dangers we face from uh, extreme Islamist fanatics. Uh, and I was there for the first World Trade Center bombing, which we didn't even know what it was. But the last movement of city life is, in fact, uh, the soundtrack of the New York City Fire Department on the day, uh, I guess back in 1992, when the World Trade Center was bombed for the first time. And uh, indeed, all of city life is dealing with a lot of disagreeable aspects of the city, the noise. I, I walk around New York with uh, earplugs in both ears every day that I'm on the street. I never leave home without them, and I, uh, I use them regularly. But at that period of time, in the early 90s uh, and the late 80s, uh, it was a more difficult time in New York uh, than uh, subsequently. The city itself was at a kind of low, low ebb within its own uh, st- style of living. So uh, yes, uh, city life commemorates you know, uh, car alarms and uh, door slams, and then finally the, uh, the bombing of the World Trade Center the first time around. You haven't been tempted to respond to the 11th of September 2001? Well, I, as a human being, I've responded, you know, many times over. My son and my granddaughter were actually in our building four blocks from the World Trade Center while my wife and I were in Vermont, and uh, we had a six-hour phone connection, which was, all of which was just, like, uh, literally terrifying. People are terrorists. Well, this was terrifying. They were quite successful. But a specific piece, not exactly, but let's say that right now I am... Uh, well, I'm almost three quarters of the way through a piece, a brand new piece, uh, not yet completed, called Daniel Variations. And Daniel Variations uh, has four short texts, two texts from the book of Daniel and two texts from the last words of the reporter Daniel Pearl, who was, as you may remember, beheaded by Islamist fanatics in Pakistan in 2002. Steve Reich, thank you very much for talking to us. Thank you.